Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is... September 11th, oh, it is that anniversary date, I forgot all about it, uh, it is September 11th of 2014, and tonight our guest is uh, Jenna Holenstein, and she is the author of Drinking to Distraction, and before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org, and we are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits. From safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Jenna? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. Did I mangle your last name? How do you say it? No, you did really well. I say Hollenstein. Holstein. Okay, I could think of at least four possible pronunciations on that that would uh, that would work in different regional areas. Um, well, the book right. is called "Drinking to Distraction," and um, I know part of the topic is about you know this is about quitting drinking before you've hit bottom and gone through you know all the extreme crazy stuff in all those wonderful uh, memoirs that everybody loves to uh, delve into and watch the train wreck. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's one of the things that we've always been very supportive of in our program is the idea of individual choice. And, you know, people, you, know, you don't have to be drinking at a certain level in our group to, to choose to quit. You know, we say, you know, if you drink one drink a night and you don't like that and think it's too much, you can quit and we will support you in that. You know, you can get every, you can get drunk every day and decide, well, you know, I've, I've been drinking and driving, and that's stupid, and I want to quit drinking and driving and get, still get drunk every day, and we will support that. So the whole idea is that we support every positive change. We support, you know, people where they are at. And so, you know, anything you want to do, we think is really good. So when I saw your book, I was really uh, excited, that, you know, to see that topic, you know, of somebody that realized that they could drink before they had the train wreck. Um, so with that little, with that very, very long, uh, digression to get into this, uh, tell us a little bit about what made you decide to stop drinking. Well, you know, drinking was really something that I, I like to do. I appreciate it. I sort of became, you know, educated about it. Um, I sort of started to feel it was part of my identity. It was largely like one of the ways I expressed my adulthood, you know, when I was in graduate school and, you know, the early years when I was living in Boston. It was something I did with people. It helped me connect with them and everything. But, you know, I started to notice that my relationship with alcohol was a little bit different than a lot of my friends. You know, I had this one friend. We would go out after classes or working late at night, um, 
And, you know, she could linger over a glass of wine for like three hours. And I would feel myself like on the edge of my chair, like, when is she going to finish that one glass so I can get another glass, you know? (laughs) And it just, it was, that's like one example of like the types of things I started to notice. Um, You know, at the same time, like you said, I, I never really like spun out of control, you know, I I managed to sort of keep things within a a range that at least from the outside looked normal, but on the inside really started to feel more and more troublesome. Um, But at the time, I really thought I had two choices. And, you know, one was to identify as an alcoholic and quit and go sort of that, you know, route that was known to me. And then the other one was to not identify and keep drinking. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it really... It was a process, you know, I, and it wasn't like a sensational process. It was kind of mundane, you know, talking to anybody who would listen, um, talking to a really wise therapist, um, journaling, you know, and just really kind of being brutally honest with myself in a nice way and like a loving way um, about, you know, what are my real reasons for using alcohol? Like, sure, you know, I can sort of, widely pair, you know, a wine with whatever type of food I'm having. And, you know, sure, I can, you know, be the salty version of myself by having a Jameson's on the rock when I'm out of the, you know, club or a bar or something like that. But, you know, part of me just started to see myself using alcohol to put a buffer between me and the rest of my life. Um, You know, in particular, when I used to come home, by myself, you know, to my condo after work and kind of wasn't sure what to do with myself. You know, was sort of not satisfied with my life, but really not sure what was the next step. And, you know, drinking was one of the ways I filled the time, but it also wasn't helping me figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just saw myself using it to um, check out. Mm-hmm. And that I found very troubling because I realized that even though I was keeping it within a certain range, in a way, I was in greater jeopardy of doing this for a really long period of time compared to somebody who, you know, would spin out of control and have to get help because it was a life or death situation. Mm -hmm. So that became more clear to me. And then I started to see that maybe there were other reasons to quit drinking besides, you know, identifying as an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's just a bizarre thing that our society has adapted, this idea of the dichotomy of what you can't, I mean, you can't decide to stop drinking unless you're an alcoholic. And then the the, the converse side of the coin that, you know, anybody that has extremely addicted to alcohol will find it extremely easy to quit. All they have to do is join a cult, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) which is not true at all, because the more addicted you are, the harder it is to quit. It's not easier to quit because... You're more addicted. It's much harder the more addicted you are. So right. It's, it's such a mythology that our that our society has woven for us. It's bizarre. Yeah. But I think what I was looking for at the time, in my sort of like inexperience with what recovery would actually look like, I thought that having that imperative would make the decision more clear. Mm-hmm. I know now, you know, seven almost seven years out, that there's such a range of experiences with addiction to alcohol and also addictions to all other things. And mm-hmm. that, you know, you know, maybe there are certain 
periods in like the early days that are harder or easier or whatever, but, but it is, it's a lifelong thing and it varies depending on so many different things, you know, mm-hmm. um, the season of the year, um, your family situation, your stress level, um, other health issues that might affect, you know, mm-hmm. might make you more vulnerable to a relapse. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I probably tend to oversimplify that sort of dichotomy. Um, and, you know, in the last seven years, I've definitely gotten an education about that. Mm. Well, it's built into our society so much. But, you know, when we think about other things, you know, you can make a positive change in your life anytime. If you want to take up exercise, for example, you don't have to wait until you weigh 700 pounds to join the gym. You can join the gym at any time. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, I, I'm actually a dietitian and I work with people who, you know, want to change their relationship with food and their bodies. And so I think even in that realm, there's this idea that there has to be some imperative in order to make a change, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, takes a lot of power out of our hands. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's also the idea it's going to be a drastic change which you probably know is uh, very often very counterproductive. You know, the person that decides uh, that's that's never exercised in the last 10 years and decides, I'm going to go to the gym and exercise an hour a day, seven days a week, uh, they're very likely to burn out very quickly and stop. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I talk about that a lot with people as far as nutrition, but also, you know, as far as dealing with recovery, you know, we think that where we need to be is very, very far from where we are at the moment. And, you know, often it's, it's very subtle shifts that are required to make meaningful and lasting change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, people could start by making small changes, you know, well, different people are different. Some people do like to make the big change all at once. And some people, right go better with small changes. Uh, when I quit smoking cigarettes, I was very heavily addicted, but I did a lot of things, but including charting and cutting back. And I was taking Chantix too, which helped me cut back. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I went from my 25 hand-rolled bugler cigarettes, those, you know, these these killers, strong sons of bitches, you know, to <laughs> smoking those, you know, to two per day, you know, over right. a period of 40 days. And, you know, I cut down. And then finally, on like day 40, I said, well, you know, I don't want to spend money on this today. (laughs) And I didn't. And then that's the last time I had a cigarette. Well, maybe it was, you know, I I often wonder about how that, what's actually changing as you're doing that. Because as you're sort of gradually reducing the number of cigarettes that you smoke, for example, your awareness of the ones that you do smoke are sort of, it's sort of different. And -hmm. your awareness of the time in between when maybe you would habitually reach for a cigarette but now are making a decision not to because you want to, you know, do it less frequently. I think the quality of the awareness changes. And then, you know, and and you might call that mindfulness. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you know, it, it allows you to make changes in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's less about, you know, feeling like a sense of deprivation, for example, or a sense of rebellion against, you know, what other people are telling you to do. And it's, 
it can become a little bit more clear about like really what's working for you and what's not working anymore. Mm. Now I want to get into that uh, thing about mindfulness and meditation because I know that's a big part of your book. Um, but since we were talking about that, you know, because one of the things I was doing, one of my big techniques was charting, which you can do uh -huh. with food, you can do with drinking. I was doing it with cigarettes. I, you know, that was my commitment was to write down every cigarette that I smoked. And one of the really interesting things that I found was, you know, I would find myself with this half-smoked cigarette in my hand, and I would mm. look at it and say, wait a minute, I didn't write that one down. How did that get there? And I would have to yeah. go back and mark it. But it was half, that was how automatic it was. And that's yeah. one of the great things about charting is making you aware and mindful. And there's lots of ways to do mindfulness. And you wrote about a bunch of them. And I want you to talk about those. <laughs> What's that? You won't keep talking about? Well, you can talk about, you're, uh, you talked about meditation in your book. So how about starting yeah. from there? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it was a couple of years into my sobriety that I started meditating. And I think, you know, during those first couple of years, I probably did what a lot of people would call dry drunk behavior, you know, whether it had to do with using food or relationships or shopping or something like that in place of alcohol, although it wasn't as frequent. Um, and it was, you know, with a, a sort of greater awareness um, at times, probably other times, not so much. Um, but it wasn't until I actually got back into a relationship that I realized, you know what, I need some sort of stability. Um, and meditation was always something that I was aware of, um, you know, for a long time, just kind of like I for a long time considered quitting drinking, I for a long time considered starting meditating. But again, my perception of it was that it was this kind of dramatic change I would need to make, you know, like I would need to, you know, wear robes and chants and light candles and things like that. Mm -hmm. I didn't appreciate the fact that it was a very ordinary practice, you know, that's like kind of like brushing your teeth, you know, mm -hmm. and that, you know, the instruction is very simple. Um, and, you know, really the basic instruction is to kind of calm the body and not clear the mind, but to work with the mind in a way so that you're focusing your awareness on an object of choice. So the type of meditation that I started doing is called shamatha, um, which I believe means peacefully abiding. And the object in that type of meditation is the breath. And so it's very much about synchronizing the body and the mind in the sense that you know, the breath is always happening in the present moment, but the mind is often sort of off in the past or in the future. So bringing the mind to meet the breath in the present moment and just watching it, you know, like an observer. And then when the thoughts arise, because they inevitably do arise, um, noticing them as soon as you can, and then bringing the awareness back to the breath. And it's, this, is, this is essentially the practice that I've been doing for the last several years um, you know, with some little variations, but that's the basic practice. And what I started to notice um, that has to do with, you know, I felt was very relevant to my drinking and any kind of addicted, you know, addictive behaviors was that I started to notice the quality of thoughts that would arise that I would either want to 
hold on to, you know, and make last longer because they were pleasant, or the ones that I wanted to get rid of, you know, because they were really unpleasant or uncomfortable or painful, or the times when I just wanted to kind of zone out. And so, you know, the qualities that I was kind of cultivating in meditation of just sort of accepting things the way that they were without modifying them really hit home that they were relevant to addiction. Because, you know, for me, drinking was all about, you know, grasping onto the pleasant aspects of life, you know, extending the party, extending the celebration, not feeling the pain of, you know, strong emotions or just disconnecting, you know, like Mm -hmm. I mentioned before. So, um, you know, the practice of meditation has definitely shed some light on, you know, how I related to alcohol before I quit. But even more than that, you know, and I I didn't do AA, but I I know that there are many helpful sayings that they have in AA, like you come for the drinking, but stay for the thinking or something like this. You know, it's really the quality of the thinking that um, is the problem. Mm. And clearly there's a physical component to a biological component of addiction that, that makes things very difficult. But, but it's also, you know, it's, very, it's also something that's very workable mm-hmm. when it comes to working with your thoughts, you know? Mm. So to me, that was, I mean, earth-shattering, this very simple process of just, accepting things the way that they were and experiencing them the way that they were and not being all sort of like, you know, happy about it all the time. I mean, sometimes it was really painful to deal with the things that, that, you know, it's just painful to deal with things that come up in life, but Mm -hmm. um, it's more painful to not deal with them. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's some uh, really heavy duty research that's uh, coming out recently about, the positive effects of mindfulness and meditation for people that are fighting addictions. Um, uh, the late Dr. Alan Marlatt's uh, study group in uh, Seattle, University of Washington, is pursuing this. Uh, they've published a lot of papers on this. They have a book out, and you know, it's, there's a lot of evidence base now behind these mindfulness practices as Absolutely. being, yeah, effective to help people overcome addictions. And here in New York City, um, uh, Dr. Andrew Tatarski at the Center for Optimal Change is uh, very big on this as well. And uh, I know they have several classes there about using uh, mindfulness and meditation uh, to deal with your addiction. So it is definitely, it's not just a hot topic, but it is an evidence-based, science-based topic that this is a technique that can be very helpful for some people to deal with their addictions. I totally agree. And I think that, um, and I love that you focus on the science and the evidence, and I think it's wonderful that there is this growing body of, of evidence um, supporting mindfulness. Um, a lot of it sort of rooted in, in the work that John Kabat-Zinn did about mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, I know mm-hmm. that um, I think the, the physician that you mentioned and also some colleagues like Sarah Bowen and um, Lawrence Pelt work with mindfulness-based relapse prevention. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, what, what people really tend to discover, and I've seen this in my nutrition clients, I've seen this, you know, early on in my own life, and, and anybody that's kind of exposed to mindfulness practices is that it has this sort of sneaky, happily sneaky way of, like, getting into other parts of your life. You know, mm-hmm. so you might come to mindfulness to reduce stress, 
or to prevent a relapse, you know, if you are in recovery. You know, but then it brings a quality of awareness, kind of like what you were talking about with charting your cigarette use, to, you know, the things that we are mindless about, mm-hmm. um, you know, to our tendency to be lost in thought, you know, and not sort of like in the present moment. Um, and it just, it, it just sort of gets, you know, into the very fabric of like all the different parts of our lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned Sarah Bowen. So I just want to do a little plug that she was on, uh, one of our shows a couple of years ago. So if you guys want to dig into the archive and listen to that one, we talked about the evidence base behind these mindfulness practices. Um, you know, one thing that I've been finding interesting, uh, this is my opinion at least, um, is a lot of cognitive behavioral practices, which, I mean, ultimately they stem from uh, Greco-Roman Stoic philosophy. I think that they have a lot in common with the mindfulness practices that have also been, uh, you know, getting popular and then it stemmed from, you know, Eastern Buddhist philosophy largely and Hindu philosophy too, but I think they actually have more in common than a lot of people realize, and that's actually the kind of direction I came from it, from was originally cognitive behavioral kind of doing thought stopping and things, and then I became, you know, aware that, uh, you know, I was the master of my mind, I am the, I can mm-hmm. observe my thoughts, and I can decide to direct my thoughts, and, yeah. you know, I, I think that both traditions have a lot in common, uh, you know, sometimes they, I don't know if they communicate enough as, as as much as they could. Right. And there's also a a, a type of therapy that's called dialectical behavioral therapy, mm-hmm, EBT, mm-hmm. that that really does incorporate the mindfulness, kind of like the, the somatic awareness, the body awareness, um, into you know the noticing of different patterns and habits and things like that as well. And I agree with you. I think that it's it's a wonderful um, trend in in that, you know, the sort of Western therapy world and the Eastern philosophy world are, you know, speaking to one another and seeing potential for helping people through um, pulling out, you know, different parts of these approaches to addiction. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned in your book that you uh, went through outpatient treatment. Um, I think, was that at the suggestion of your therapist? Uh, That was the suggestion of a therapist. Um, I was working with um, a psychopharmacologist at the time because I was speaking at antidepressants. And she, you know, had sort of recommended that I consider quitting drinking, you know, a couple of times, but I kind of wasn't ready for that. And then when I shared that I was finally ready, she suggested this program, um, I believe it was called AdCare, that, um, you know, it really served as like a bridge for me between when I was drinking and and whatever was going to come next, you know, so that I wasn't just doing it on my own or, or I wasn't just kind of you know, throwing myself into, you know, AA meetings or something like that. And it was very helpful just in exposing me to, you know, some of the the thinking, some of the sort of work involved with with getting and staying sober, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't actually an AA meeting. It wasn't actually, um, 
you know, associated with AA, but they use a similar sort of model in um, the way that people listen to one another without interrupting, um, for example. And then, you know, it was December at the time, so a lot of the focus was about managing the holidays, you know, dealing with family stuff and, you know, just emotional stuff that comes up during the December holidays and New Year's and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I found in my personal experience, because I went through uh, treatment, actually I went through treatment twice, inpatient treatment, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the the second one in particular was very traditional 12-step based and was definitely highly detrimental and did me a lot more harm than good. So <laughs> my reaction was, mm-hmm. was definitely um, I would have been better off without this. Actually, I did have right. to find my own path. But, um, you know... And I know in your book you wrote that you, you didn't feel, feel that you fit there. Do you think it was necessary? Do you think it was helpful? Do you think you could have done everything on your own? Or what do you think? You know, I had tried before to quit drinking, and I was not successful. So I really appreciated that program because I was taking a formal step toward recovery. That wasn't just in private, you know? This, it was part of my sort of declaring that I was going to take this, to make this big change, declaring to other people so that they would hold me accountable um, mm-hmm. and that it was going to be different than the other times in the past when I could have just as easily gone into an AA meeting, but I didn't for one reason or another, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that said, and it could have just been pure coincidence, you know, that I had the experience that I did because so many people have come to me and said, you know, I'm really sorry that you had the experience that you had. That was never my experience of this type of structure or this type of 12-step approach. But, you know, I, um, in the in the group that I was with during that time, I was just not necessarily viewed by the others as bad enough, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think that that was a big turnoff to me and was part of the reason why I didn't pursue AA after the fact, as we were all advised to do. Um mm. At the same time, I saw more similarities between me and the people who were in those rooms than I saw differences. So it didn't affect my conviction. I mean, I realized that maybe I could have used that to say, well, yeah, I'm not as bad as I you know, thought I was. I can keep drinking. But at that point, I'd already spent so much time convincing myself to get in the door that I wasn't going to use that as a deterrent. You know, I wasn't going to use that as some rationale and kind of go backwards. And like I said, I mean, the people in there, the things that they shared, the stories, the pain that they were suffering, I I identified with all of it. And Hmm. so I felt like even though this may not exactly be the right path, I'm doing the right thing. I'm in the right place right now. It doesn't feel 100% like a great fit. But this is the right way to go, and I'll figure it out as I go. And that's exactly what I feel like I did, you know, um, for a couple of years, kind of not being, you know, the most functional in the sense that I wasn't using other, that I was you know, still using other things in an addictive way. Um, but ultimately, I feel like I sort of saw myself doing that, just like I sort of saw myself using alcohol for reasons that I thought were detrimental to my, you know, just overall quality of my life. Um, And when I found and started practicing meditation, I really felt like I sort of discovered the right path for me. It just took a little longer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So, well, I don't know if it took longer for you than did longer than what? <laughs> well, longer than if I were to, you know, start going to AA meetings directly out of that outpatient program, for example. It was, I think, another two years maybe before I discovered meditation. Um, and I didn't really feel like I was white knuckling it, but um, at the same time, you know, there were probably aspects of my recovery that were not necessarily progressing like someone who was working the steps. Um, okay, that's that's one person's opinion. Um, I've yeah. Had- I've had so many experiences with AA people who were so crazy that I've seen that working these steps seems to make people, a lot of people, really nuts. You know, it's, it's total extremists. Um, you know, my experience when I was going to those meetings, if you know, if I asked a question, you know, if I questioned, say, you know, the first step, I think saying you're powerless is really a bad idea. I would be told, well, you need to go out and drink more and suffer more, and once you drink enough and suffer enough, you come crawling back on your knees and you won't ask right. any more questions. And that's kind of, you know, the whole damn thing. That's why I can't I can't stand the program, which everybody already knows. I'm not yep. going to spend a lot of time on that because everybody already knows that. <laughs> uh, but definitely it's not for me. Uh, I don't know that it's a good match for that many people. I mean, you start looking at the numbers. They say now there's 23.5 million people in recovery. Um you know, that's from a, a big survey that was done between OASS, the New York State Office of Addictions, whatever, and uh, drugfree.org. And, you know, they, they found 23.5 million Americans in recovery. Well, there's less than 1.5 million of those that are AA members, which means 90% right. of people kick this stuff on their own. It's just, right. When you kick it on your own, you don't want to go running around saying, you know, I owe my life to kicking it on my own. You kind of say, well, that shit's in the past. I don't want to talk about it. Because most people that kick on their own, they don't want to talk yeah. about that shit anymore. It's over. Right. I get that. You know, I do. And I really think that, um, I mean, part of why I wrote the book and, and, you know, before it was a book, it was a blog for a number of years, um, was to, you know, one, to sort of communicate that idea with it, that, there's not just two choices, you know. You don't necessarily have to identify as an alcoholic to quit drinking. And also the fact that there are other ways of going about things, you know, mm-hmm. and that you really need to figure out the right path for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've since learned a little bit about Buddhism, and part of what I like about Buddhism is that, you know, they say sort of like, here's, you know, the Dharma, here are the teachings. Try it out for yourself. If you think it's BS, drop it. You know, don't use it. But if it if it works for you, then take it, you know. And, you know, that's really been my approach in recovery. It's been figuring out what works for me, you know. And I actually I actually go to an occasional meeting if it means that I'm going with, like, a sober friend of mine or something like that. You know, there's interesting things to me. Again, you know, just the common, you know, stories that you hear and, and the, the compassion that I feel for, for us in recovery is important for me just on a day-to-day, you know, just as far as my day-to-day experience. But, but I, you know, it would not be me if I were to start going to meetings regularly. It just, it just never felt right, and it's not what I tend to do. Um, and I've had people tell me, you know, um, oh, that must have been incredibly lonely or, you know, you don't have to do it alone. You can, you can, you know, start coming, you know, every day. You know, I had somebody tell me that, 
um, because I hadn't done, you know, 12 steps that even though I had, you know, nearly seven years, I might be basically at the same level as someone who had just quit drinking, you know, yesterday. And I was thinking, that just seems so wrong to me. You know, I've done so much work on myself and Mm -hmm. I've I've been incredibly honest with myself. You know, this is not Mm -hmm. a situation of someone who was constitutionally unable to be honest with herself. (laughs) So, you know, I think that really we need to support one another in recovery in the sense that there are lots of different ways to do it. And you know what? What worked yesterday is under no obligation to work today. And so, you know, the mindfulness piece, I think, again, helps us recognize, you know, when do we keep doing the same thing um, even when they're no longer working? You know, I mean, at some point we all kind of figured out that drinking wasn't working anymore. I mean, it might have worked in some ways, you know, at the beginning as far as helping us feel more comfortable in social situations or something else, but eventually it stops working and you have to sort of be aware enough to to know that. It's the Mm -hmm. same thing with recovery, you know, whether it's therapy or reading or meditating or some combination of all these different approaches, sometimes it, you know, it might stop working and you might have to try something different. And I think if we are in the recovery community encouraging each other to figure it out, you know, to what, be open enough to experiment and sort of like under, learn what works for you, then I think we're in a much better place. And I think also that more people would feel comfortable approaching recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something very cultish about saying if you didn't recover the same way that I did, then you're not really in recovery. It doesn't matter that you don't drink, you haven't drank in 20 years. Uh, you know, you didn't work the steps, that means you're not really in recovery because that's how I did it. Uh, you know, and I know there's a lot of people in AA that uh, don't think that way, they're not that close minded. Um, I have any, because I work in needle exchange, among other things. And, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of my friends in needle exchange, they are members of Narcotics Anonymous. But when they're doing needle exchange, they don't talk about that. They they practice harm reduction. They say, you know, we're really happy that you're using clean needles and you're not putting people at risk of disease. You're not putting yourself at risk of disease. And we thank you for using clean needles. And, you know, you don't try to force people to change at all. But right. you just appreciate the positive change that they did make, which was... Well, like you, you know, said, you meet people where they are. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, all my 12-step friends that I do have, they are all needle exchangers because that's, you know, that's basically, uh, I wanted to develop harm reduction for alcohol that didn't exist. So I wanted to learn what was working in the harm reduction programs that did exist. So that's why I went to Mm -hmm. volunteer in needle exchange. It wasn't because I ever shot dope because, you know, I've never, I had morphine once in the hospital and that's it. It was good. And I said, well, this is a little too good. I better, you know, not mess around with this too much. But, you know, but it was, it's been one of the great learning experiences of my life. And I'm still very heavily involved with all my colleagues in needle exchange. And, you know, I think of meeting people where they're at, helping them to make changes that they choose for themselves and, you know, encouraging small changes. And when people are ready, they choose for themselves to make bigger changes. Yeah. Well, because I think that, you know, being in the driver's seat helps them feel capable and feel better about themselves and not feel like they're doing somebody else's version of recovery. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, particularly with heroin users, they're so stigmatized and they're so hated by all of society 
that you know if you create a safe space where they can come in and be welcome and talk about themselves and be accepted as human beings just on an equal level it is such an amazing thing for people to experience yeah. that it is it's really transformative yeah well i mean why would they need anything different than anybody else i mean we we all need compassion and connection and you know intimacy and understanding i mean that you know no matter what our substance of choice might be mhm yeah it's just so hard if you for that population to get that you know if they go to the doctor's office yeah. they're just here to get drugs rush them out give them a bum's rush get rid of them we don't want to talk to them it's like you know this is well and again if if there were a greater sort of um aspect of different routes to recovery i think that you know that kind of scenario in the doctor's office could be very different mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know because people could be educated about um presenting you know a, a variety of of options to somebody mhm yeah, it's very different in uh, some of the other countries like uh, Denmark and and uh, Switzerland. Um, they actually have heroin-assisted treatment. You can get heroin by prescription. You can uh, have a, a nurse watch you while you inject to make sure that you're safe. And, you know, they'll mm-hmm. give you a safe place to inject. They'll watch you so that you didn't overdose. And, you know, safe injection facilities, heroin-assisted treatment. Um, and all these things really get people engaged. They're very respectful of people. And, you know, when people start feeling that they're being treated, you know, like human beings, they start wanting to act like human beings. And, you know, yeah. they, they just really start moving forward. And uh, Well, and they start treating themselves with greater respect, too. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's such a shame that we are so backwards in this country that, you know, there's one way to do things, and that's, you know... The 12 steps and that's it. And if you don't get it, well, you're bad. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, one thing I would say for somebody who's, you know, approaching recovery and just doesn't feel like the the 12 steps is the right route for them is that these other ways do exist. You just sometimes have to look a little harder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really difficult to make yourself visible. I don't know if you ever heard of our program, a Ham's Harm Reduction, before I contacted you. Probably not. I don't think I did. No. No, it's hard to it's hard to get known out there. Um, you know, especially if you have no funding. I've written, you know, a few hundred web pages so on our site, so that that draws a lot of people in. Especially, I wrote a page about right. how to, how to taper off alcohol, which uh, there was nothing on the internet about that. You know, it said either mm. go to detox or you'll die. Uh, well, you know, people have been using a taper method for, you know, since the dawn of time. You know, you can right. reduce your alcohol gradually and you won't have DTs if you do that. And so that's something that's drawn a lot of people to our site. But, you know, it's it's hard to get noticed out there because, you know, there's uh, uh, Tens of billions of dollars a year spent on the, you know, twelve-step program, and you know, with your uh, right. little agency with, uh, you know, a, no, you know, a budget of a, you know, uh, well, our cash was uh, fifteen thousand uh, last year, and we had the Google AdWords grant, which uh, was about a hundred thousand dollars worth of free ads, but not cash. So we were definitely running on a shoestring, you know. Right. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's a little different than fifteen billion. <laughs> a little bit. So, well, are, are there any other topics that you would like to cover before we finish up here? Um, you know, I think I think the um, the sort of culture of drinking and and celebration, I mean, especially that's grown around women and, you know, mothers kind of in particular, um, you know, it's something that I find concerning. And, you know, I think that um, there's this sort of tendency to, much like, you know, we do with food, is to develop this very common dialogue around drinking, you know, oh, I've had the worst day, I need a drink. Or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, some story about the kids, for example, that, you know, would, would, you know, put your hair on end, you know, who, who is going to make me a martini or it's, it's got to be five o'clock somewhere. You know, I, I think that we need to look at this sort of shared dialogue that we have, um, which to me is sort of obscuring the real need. I mean, clearly to me, when somebody is is relaying a sort of stressful or exhausting story and they end with, you know, I need a drink, it it feels to me like they're kind of missing the point, you know, Mm -hmm. of, you know, maybe what they really need is support or a break or some change, you know, that will allow them to have more time for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, you know, this sort of connecting with one another using this sort of shared vocabulary of of drinking is is sort of dangerous, you know, because it's normalizing what in a lot of cases is not normal alcohol use. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're seeing more and more of these sort of, um, you know, recovering mommy um, memoirs. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a lot of women are, are getting to a point, you know, usually very much in private, where they can't sustain this anymore. And I think that, um, I mean, part of why I try to be so vocal about my own story, you know, is that I, I believe that it can help people. And I really think that, you know, among women, young women professionals among, you know, mothers who are stressed out and exhausted. I think that we need to pay attention to the words that we're using when it comes to expressing our needs, when it comes to, you know, what we default to. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's just my little, my little add on there. Um, but it's, you know, it's something that I've, I've noticed a lot in the last couple of years. It seems to be sort of just this, this, you know, shared, very accepted, very encouraged kind of language. Um, you know, and it's not unlike the sort of guiding language that I'm very much against. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it's very harmful. Um, so I think we, I think we should pay a little closer attention to that and, you know, notice that, you know, people who are struggling at home or, at work or just balancing, you know, the demands of life, um, they, it might not just be this kind of harmless, you know, um, martini at the end, you know, after the kids go to bed. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I know that I can't uh, drink that way. I can't uh, drink reactively. Uh, you know, uh, such and such happened. I need a drink. Uh, that's not going to, you know. I, long time ago, I realized if I was going to use alcohol, I had to put it on a schedule. Okay, today is the designated drinking day for this week. The other days are the designated abstinence days. So this is planned in advance. This is my schedule. I'm sticking to this schedule. Well, right. Actually, the 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 one exception I can allow myself is the drinking day. You know, I am actually allowed to skip drinking on the designated drinking day, but I'm not mm -hmm. allowed to drink on the designated abstinence days. You know, so I can actually take an extra day off of drinking if I want to. But if I if I don't uh, keep a pretty strict schedule for myself, it's not going to work for me. I'm just, you know. I'm not going to be in control. Uh, alcohol is going to be in control, and that's not going to work. Right. And I realize, you know, some people, some people do well with controlled drinking. Some people find it's easier to quit. You know, I've talked about this before, too. You know, I've had addictions where I found abstinence is easier. Cigarettes is one. I quit cigarettes completely. I have a cigar now mm -hmm. and then. But that's a total different mindset. I've had one cigar this past year, so that was pretty good. Actually, one the past two years because I was so damn busy the past two years. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I wasn't abstaining. I was just too busy to take the time out because that's a big time-consuming process. Um, you know, television. I don't allow television in my house because I get too addicted. I get hooked. I watch all this crap I don't enjoy. I disgust it with myself, and then I turn it back on the next morning. <laughs> right. Definitely. Well, I think, you know, I wonder if maybe in the next, I don't know how many years, you know, we might better understand, you know, who's vulnerable to what addictions and who can, you know, reasonably moderate. You know, I think, I, I hope that that's, you know, one direction that the research is going so that we can better understand, you know, what, what approach will work for what individual. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, you know, uh, one of the things that we find is when people get older, um, generally, the more mature you get, the better you are in control of yourself. Uh, you're not only better at moderating, you're also better at abstaining. <laughs> you get more mature. And you're probably better off at being able to make choice. You know, you, people's, mm. brains, people's brains change in lots of ways. You know, the, the traditional thing that, the, that uh, NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, wants to show us is this drug gets in your brain and it gets in, it pulls you down and it makes your brain all change in one direction. And they ignore the fact that, you know, everybody's brains are changing in a million different directions at once. At the same time, right. the pull of the drug is bringing you down. You're getting older and more mature. And, you know, your natural maturation process is actually pulling you away from addiction. And, you know, when you start looking at the numbers, it's really interesting. There's, uh, you know, they, they've uh, published a paper in 2011, about the lifetime outcomes of uh, addictions, and 90% of people with an alcohol addiction uh, remit. Hmm. The lifetime remittance rate for alcohol addiction is 90%. For cocaine, it was 99%. Um, and the worst one was uh, tobacco, actually, uh, like 85% or something, or 82% maybe, it was 80-something. So wow. the, the toughest addiction is still nicotine. That's the one that really pulls people hardest. But you know, yeah, the others, that's what I've read. people get older, 
And they either say, <laughs> they either say, I'm done, I'm quitting, or they say, you know, uh, I'm not drinking this much anymore. It's stupid, and they moderate. But yeah, well, that's the natural outcome. So that's a good sign. <laughs> Well, I think we're running out of time, so I want to uh, thank you for being our guest this evening. Thank you. And the book is called Drinking to Distraction. It's available from Amazon. And everyone, we will see you all next week with another show. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.